Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The members of Jersey band Folly started jamming in the late 90s, but didn't really get going till the early 2000s. Not only were they pounding the pavement playing ska at a time when the genre was not popular, but they had a really strange way of playing it. They mixed ska with the heaviest music imaginable and found ways to blend these different genres in seemingly subtle and natural ways. They did this by finding the similarities in the rhythms of hardcore, metalcore, and ska. There were many that said it couldn't be done, but Folly did it, and they did it well. Folly is so heavy. Why did I not hear this band back in the... I mean, I know why I didn't hear them back in the late 80 days. They really started 2002, 2003 to really hit it hard. Yeah. And that was when we weren't doing Link 80 anymore. But this is right up my alley. I was so stoked to find out about this band. One of my favorite things about Folly is how they blend ska and like heavy music. Yeah. They do it in a way where it's not they don't rely on the juxtaposition of them being so different. They try to find areas where they're the most similar. Yeah. And, and blend them. It's very unusual. At least, you know, if you listen to a lot of Scott punk in the U S yeah, it's a way different approach. So many of the bands that we grew up listening to would just, you know, put the two parts up against each other. Yeah. And so there would just be a tra- like a transition straight from one to the other. Folly doesn't really do that. And it was, and they would emphasize it because it created, there was like, it created dynamics. So they would really lean into the dynamics of the differences of these styles where that's not what Folly does. Neither of us have ever seen Folly before, right? No, but you're going to be seeing them this year, right? I'm going to see them at Fest. Fest? Really? They're playing Fest this year. Hey, Fest, next year, you got to bring Aaron and I out. Have us at Fest, Tony. Yes. In defense of Ska, Fest collaboration. Let's do a t-shirt. Talk to our manager, Brent. And he, you guys can negotiate a fair fee. I think Brent manages everything at this point. Yeah. If you want to get a hold of us, just talk to Brent. <laughs> I don't know if you guys heard um, when we uh, interviewed Anthony Fantano or also when he interviewed me 
both of these instances, yes, folly came up. Yes, I definitely heard one of them. John, do you remember which one? Because you sent that to us, right? Was that Anthony interviewing Aaron? I think so. Yeah, yeah, it was Anthony interviewing. He brought you guys up as a, one of the bands that he saw uh, in you know his time in the the scene in Connecticut. Yeah, I re-listened to the one he did of me, and he was talking about the metalcore scene. Yeah, and so he. He kind of referred to you as a metalcore band that had ska elements. But in that interview, I said, no, we claim them. <laughs> <laughs> so go, let's hear you. Let's hear you guys weigh in on the debate here. Wow. Wow. The the ska draft. Who's there in your first round picks here? You know, are you guys metalcore or ska? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think it's an or uh, with us uh, as much as an and always, you know, and it's a, uh, it, it's, I guess in a way we kind of like exploited every genre we could when we were young, you know? Yeah. And we were, we were all into everything. So uh, the music that came from, from that, uh, from that mind frame was like, well, let's just mix everything we love. And uh, it, it's hard to, uh, to say, you know, you have any one root in one genre uh, for us, especially, but, you know, I think, uh, and Arvin can probably um, say the same, that we were a little stubborn when people, you know, um, dis discounted ska as a genre, like we were a little bit stubborn about that. And uh, mm -hmm. so I think in, it, it, it's strange because you don't think of ska as kind of having that hardcore um, ethos, but in a way it was, it was like almost a rebellion on our end to, to play the music we loved, you know, um, despite in a hardcore scene, especially in New Jersey, that was like pretty, uh, judgmental about that, you know? Yeah, for, for sure. I think the ska versus metalcore thing, it's like, um, I mean, with us, you can't have one without the other. And that's just kind of the way that we did the band, you know, like if we, mm -hmm. if, if, all of us in the band had a dollar for every time someone asked us if we're going to quote drop the ska or not. <laughs> we probably have, I don't know, a few hundred dollars. Um, you know, and I, John, I could imagine you could probably think of specific moments where people have asked you that, like everyone from fans to like, you know, agents and label uh, heads would ask that same thing. And it was like, ew, how dare you ask something like that? Like, that's, this is what we do, you know? So, yeah, I guess long answer or short answer, rather, it's both, you know? It's uh, feet firmly in both camps, I guess. How old were you guys when you started playing together? Well, we were, uh, uh, Arvin, I mean, you and I were in a band before we joined the likes of Folly. Um, yeah, like we, we were all in high school, for sure. Um, and we kind of freshman year of high school yeah yeah it was um we all kind of uh well the the band was technically started by Agim and jeff our guitar players when they were freshmen in high school and i guess the story goes that you know uh my brother Agim he had an op ivy shirt on and jeff had a mustard plug shirt on and they were like fast friends and science class when they laid eyes on each other because we went to a regional <laughs> high school um, so in ninth grade, you got to meet kids from the surrounding towns, you know, 
So for kids yeah. like us, it was always a big deal to see like who had the punk or ska band t-shirts on first day of school. So that's what happened to them, you know, similar interests in music. And they ended up starting a band later that year. I think John, you came around like two years later and I was there like a year after that. And then Anthony yeah. was the year after that. So it was all very much like a high school band for us. Okay. And what was your band like before, before Folly? Yeah. What was it called? First off? <laughs> It might not be so PC, but uh, we were Jim Slim and the Midget Tossers, um, <laughs> which at a time before, you know, uh, it, it was a term of endearment more than anything. Visually, visually, it made sense because in that band, it was, um, uh, you know, our singer of that band was um, this this uh, this dude, Jim, that we knew who we're still, you know, relatively friendly with. And he is six, nine. And we were all high school kids and he was a little older than us too. I think he was like 21 at that time. Cause we used to ask him to like buy us beer and we were like 15 and shit. So we were the tiny, tiny 15 year olds and Jim was full of tattoos, <laughs> almost seven feet tall. Yeah. looked like, like a mix between like a street punk and a biker neck tattoos before they were cool. Like the whole thing. And he was our singer and we were all like 15. I think at that time there was like one, person who had a driver's license in the whole band so it was just like typical high school band stuff but we had this like crazy awesome dude singing for us and the band was you know uh ska punk basically you know kind of like precursor to i guess what folly did because the band was kind of out there in a lot of ways and dabbled in other genres here and there but um yeah definitely a precursor to what i guess we would do afterwards i wonder i wonder what was going on with him a 21 year old being like yeah all 15 year olds <laughs> yeah he, he we played at our high school actually we played at like one of our you know one of the dances uh it was like a homecoming dance actually i think uh maybe what would have been our been our uh sophomore year probably of high school so it, for for actual time reference here, we're talking 1996, 97-ish. Um, but uh, yeah, Jim, Jim is and was just an amazing person and awesome. But uh, he, he, it was kind of funny to be these young kids in high school with this. Uh, like a man. Amazing. Yeah, and a man. And <laughs> well, yeah, like he, had, he had an apartment. He lived on his own. And that was so weird to us you know because we were still very much high school kids so like i don't i want you know on one hand it's like you're an adult man you know like living <laughs> a, a life uh and we are very much little kids um but it didn't matter at the time it's like you hear about a lot of that stuff you know like there's a random older dude in a band full of high school kids now talking about it it seems weird as hell but yeah then it was just like, well, this is, you know, we were all just kind of people in our local scene. So you just sort of found who you found to do a band with, you know? Yeah, we, we grew up in uh, kind of a rural area of New Jersey in Sussex County. And contrary to what a lot of people think New Jersey is, it's, uh, you know, has a lot of rural um, sort of bucolic towns. And that's those are the towns we grew up in. Uh, but anyhow, it was we were geographically kind of removed from a lot of stuff that did happen um 
not even an hour away in New York City, but like we, we were so far away from that that uh, we had to occupy our time by getting into not trouble, but just doing something creative and constructive. And that's kind of what came of it. And our little scene up there flourished with how many people got involved. And, you know, Jim was somebody you would have never hung out with otherwise or gone over to his apartment and watched him tattoo someone, you know, like <laughs> you wouldn't have done that, but uh, playing music around, around our area, everybody just sort of uh, like gelled and, and got stuck together by doing it. So. Can you remember any of Jim's tattoos? I can't any, uh, didn't wait. Did he not have his, uh, social security tattooed over his stomach, Arben? I believe he did. Um, that sounds familiar. I don't really remember specifically any of his tattoos, although I do remember a few flyers that he drew because he would like hand draw, um, flyers for shows that we would be playing. So I do remember a few of those and he's like a very prolific artist that has, you know, um, continued with his art throughout the years it's i don't think it's ever been his like main thing but he gets um you know hired for things for his art whether it's band merch or uh motorcycle helmets and like weird stuff that his art goes on so he was like definitely like new as shit and was definitely um accomplished in that area i don't remember what his tattoos were give us one of the flyers art that you remember Oh, there was this flyer. It almost kind of looked like this. John, do you remember? It was it like a, like a multi tentacled, like snail looking thing. Yes, I, I know. I knew. I do know what you're talking about. I can see it for a show. I want to say it was at the Rockaway American Legion or something like that with humble beginnings and shower with goats. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, it was um like very detailed, like um kind of like a cross between like cartoony, but also classic tattoo flash kind of art Mm -hmm. um, with a lot of like crazy, like skulls and aliens and demons and that kind of stuff. I have very little uh, reference for that or what to call it, but he was really, really good for sure. Did he ever tattoo any of you kids? (laughs) He did not. No, I have a feeling he, I want to say he would have if we pressed him on it. I don't think that ever came up. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't know what the story was. I know he did not have a driver's license, though. That's why I mentioned about the licenses before. I think one out of the, in this band, we had like a full horn section, too. So it was like drums, bass, two guitars, usually three horns sometimes a tuba and a lead singer and there was like a single driver's license amongst the whole band (laughs) so i don't know what his deal is but yeah he lives like a pretty normal life married kids seemingly happy he's actually going to design a t-shirt for us coming up so nice yes that's what's up full circle shit you know and a side note when uh, you know completely unrelated but i feel like we are already down to jim frizzell rabbit hole. Um, and I, I must mention yeah. that he called me once from Chicago. I think it was Chicago. <laughs> He's like, Hey, um, you know, they flew me out to Chicago. I'm going to be on the, I could be wrong, but I think it was the Jenny Jones show. Yes, you're exactly right. <laughs> was that the Jenny Jones show? Arvin? Wow. Um, and it was one, you know, the theme of the show was, um, like I'm dating a freak, you know, it was completely scripted and produced or whatever, but he had the look of like something, I guess like your, your, uh, if, you know, a teenage girl's mom would loathe and, and, 
completely terrified of. Um, and yeah, he called me from the bathroom of the hotel in Chicago and was like, Hey, I just wanted to call you because there's a toilet, a phone in the toilet. There, there's a phone in this bathroom. And I just wanted to call you to tell you. But, but anyway, I, I know it seems like uh, we've wandered down that, but he was uh, a big part of our, our scene and our upbringing. I mean, Arvin and I playing in a band together um, and, you know, uh, those, the early years, I mean, Folly, when we, when we joined in, uh, 98 and maybe 99, Arvin, you came in a little after me. Yeah. It was like summer, summer 99. Cause I did a demo. The first, my first recording with Folly was fall 99. Uh, fall 99. Yeah. And we, I mean, Folly what, before, uh, hand was basically a little more like a sort of jelly bean style um ska pop punk you know and uh and you guys brought the metalcore we did a little bit i i think <laughs> i think arbin more so than anyone and arbin and Agim had a little more of a background and an experience going to hardcore shows and listening to um hardcore records so i want to ask a little bit about your are you you joining the band yes on a triple crown's website it says that no one knows how John became the singer. He just kind of <laughs> showed up one day. <laughs> oh, it, tell, what, let's this. Let's figure out how you became the singer. Do you remember? That's probably more true than <laughs> anything. Uh, Were you just the next, the next available friend in line? Well, I mean, you guys probably experienced this too when you were younger. You would just go to other bands' practices. You know, if like another sure. buddy's band was practicing, you'd, you'd like go and hang out. And I did that a bunch for folly practices, especially at your house, Arbin, when they used to practice there. Yeah. Um, I didn't live too far from Arbin, so I was able to either ride my bike or, or uh, you know, hitch a ride over there. But yeah, just kind of hanging out and showing up and knowing the songs, you know, when it came down to like uh, them needing somebody to sing, like a breathing, but like a breathing body on stage, basically like anyone that could just stand there. And so we can play the show. Um, I, I knew the songs and it, it just kind of happened from there, you know? So there was no folly singer before you. There was, yeah, there was um, a, a, probably a string of them actually. And uh, you know, my uh, predecessor was this dude named Larry, and we all went, like everybody, you know, we all went to high school together. It was a big, close community. I, I you know, and I still wouldn't call myself much of a singer. Um, <laughs> joining the band when we, when Arvin and I kind of came in, we started to get a little darker, a little, a little heavier or whatever. But um, I had no experience. I'm actually a drummer by trade, you know, and that's in my heart of hearts. Even now, that's what I love to play. Um, I love to play drums. So having getting getting a chance to like be a singer in a band was very strange at first and uh to go from the back to the front of the stage. I think our and our buddy Pete has told me the story before. He still laughs about it. That first show that I played with Folly, um apparently I coughed and instead of using my hand to cover my mouth, I just I coughed into the mic because I, I had no idea how to like even hold a microphone correctly really, you know, like I had no, no presence with it. I didn't know how to move with it or whatever. As far as me going back to, you know, that the triple crown uh, bio, 
it's very true. I, strangely, I really just kind of showed up and, <laughs> and still, even to this day, I, I show up to practice, you know, that's kind of, uh, how it, how it's all worked and worked well. Arben is, is John actually in the band? <laughs> um, I, I think you are John, right? John, are you in the band? Sometimes when I, when I show up, Sometimes you are in the band. John Ar- Arben confirmed it. You're in, you're in the band full you're time. In the band. How about this, John, you are officially in the band from this point forward. <laughs> oh man. Congratulations. You finally made it. Historic moments. So I was looking at a map and New Brunswick is like an hour and a half away, right? Yeah. Everything cool is like an hour plus away from where we grew up. So you did not really necessarily feel connected to that scene over there, which was like Catch-22, Inspector 7, all that stuff? Well, you know, we felt very, I guess you could say, spiritually connected. Um, you know, though both those bands were hugely important to all of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. But being in high school and being in the area that we were from, like without being able to drive to some of these shows, mass transit in the area that we lived in was like completely non-existent. So we would like, you know, beg, borrow and steal our way to any shows that we could. And if we were lucky enough, one of our older buddies with a license would say, okay, I'll drive and we'll all hop in. And that's how we got to see some incredible shows. But yeah, as far as, you know, you know, John, you probably saw Catch-22 a handful of times, but I definitely missed out on them when they were like, you know, hand quote, just a local band, you know? Um, yeah. I was aware of, of them, but, you know, it's like you look at some old flyers or, you know, talk with friends and like, oh man, Catch Me Too played, you know, at some dive like every weekend or some random Legion hall. And like, uh, it was just so hard to get to. But I saw Inspector 7 uh, definitely a handful of times early on and that was another thing like begging our friends with licenses to be the driver so we could get to um you know maxwell's and hoboken and and hopefully the door person uh would let us in because we were like 15 at the time you know what i mean like shit like that yeah arvin it it's funny you mentioned that because i was thinking about um you know speaking of like just hopping in somebody's car uh i was thinking about brian our buddy brian lawler's sister jess um driving us to montclair state university it, uh, a freezing cold winter night and she didn't have any heat i just remember freezing in her volkswagen uh van going down to this show and it was uh it was mephiscopheles inspector seven and the royalties who was like an awesome new jersey trad ska band of the time uh and it was it was just glorious go you know making making the trip out of Sussex County. It was always an adventure and uh, being able to, um, to, to get out of our County and see awesome shows was always like something we wanted to do. It was like kind of a weekend thing. You know, I want to make it down to New Brunswick or to Boundbrook. Actually, there was, there was a lot of awesome shows in Boundbrook um, right outside New Brunswick and uh, New York city being close enough as it was with so many great, natural new york city based ska bands but also touring bands coming in we we were far enough away to be removed from it um and feel kind of isolated a little bit but we were close enough to to get either driven or when we came of age to drive in so um you know the best thing of that time was like showing up at a mephiscopheles show and 
uh, paying at the door and immediately dancing. You know, it's like <laughs> the only kind of show where you could just kind of like put your wallet in back in your pocket and then dance into things. You were literally you know? and it was dancing kind of... <laughs> from the moment you got your hand stamped all the way to the <laughs> all the way yeah to the bathroom and back. Yeah. You know, and it was just uh, it was wonderful, man. It really was. But real quick though, Aaron, you brought up uh, New Brunswick, and New Brunswick is such an important city uh, in not just New Jersey. Uh, but like in just New Jersey music and punk and hardcore, especially. And there was um, uh, a now, you know, famed venue called the Melody Bar um, that had some of the greatest shows ever that we would always kind of hear about and then kind of not be able to make it down there because it was an hour and a half away. So we missed yeah. out on, you know, I ended up going there a few times in my life, but, you know, that was a back in the time when you could see, lifetime and for the love of and you know weston and endeavor for six dollars on a sunday afternoon you know what i mean which is like crazy to think about now in a little bar that held like 120 people or something um but that you know places like that were well established and so many bands kind of came out from that general area and that general scene but like you said we we, we were removed from that we were in, uh, I guess, in, in Game of Thrones terminology, we were beyond the wall. We were like, <laughs> wildlings. In, in wildlings as far north as you could go in the furthest reaches of the state, you know? The Thens. We were a bunch of Thens. Yeah. We'll be right back after this. Let's talk about the Sussex scene in the late 90s then. Who were the bands... And, and where were the shows? Oh, man. Well, locally, you know, for us, it all really came together around this place in Franklin, New Jersey called, um, oh, my God, John. The, the phone booth. The phone booth, of course. Um, so there's this place called the phone booth that um, they allowed all ages matinee shows there on one Sunday every month. And that ran for a couple of years. Uh, and that was sort of booked and managed by this dude, Ted, who played in kind of a long running pop punk band called Flatus. Not sure if you've ever heard of that before. Mm. Well, what, what was the phone booth? It, what kind of business was it? It was a, like a kind of run of the mill bar and restaurant. Oh, okay. Had like yeah. a room in the back with a little stage in it. Um, kind of like, you know, the back room attached to a restaurant where you could like rent out for your private party kind of thing. Um, but there was like a little, like a very small stage, if you could even call it that, almost like a little band shell, like the room just ended and there was like a six foot stage there. Um, and they would have bands play and it was cover bands and it was whatever. But this dude, Ted, who was in a punk band, um, just sort of, uh, they, you know, worked it out with them where they, they allowed him to book all ages shows there on Sunday afternoons. So a lot of things kind of came from that sort of having like this clubhouse kind of feel where you could go to the show each month and see, you know, all your friends from other bands or either like other towns that you didn't really like see people normally from like other high schools, you know? So that was like really important to us. And then there was like a network of short lived 
you know, Legion Halls, Knights of Columbus's, Moose Lodges, like the Fireman's Hall, the church basement. There was a lot of those kind of popping up at the same time, too, that might only have one. They might only make it for two or three shows before it was shut down. But a lot of those things kind of popped up. And then there was the whole like sort of like house party sort of scene, you know, someone having bands play in their backyard or in their living room while their parents are on vacation, shit like that, you know. Can you remember some of the bands, the local bands, particularly ones that maybe at the time felt like a big deal to you guys? Well, I will say this. I don't know if, if I, don't, I don't know if anyone any of them felt like a big deal. It felt like the bands that we thought were bigger deals were not from our immediate area. You know what I mean? Um, but I will say this: so there, we went to high school with some dudes who were in, I guess, reasonably noteworthy bands or bands that had become kind of. Um, how would you describe uh, John? You know, so the Oi Scouts and Shady View Terrace. So the Oi Scouts are this Oi street punk band that recorded to seven inches and broke up. And then they're one of those bands that like people seek after their seven inches. You know what I mean? They, they played in California a few years ago and like sold out a few clubs after never having played out in like out of New Jersey in 20 years. And then this band called Shady View Terrace who were like, pretty early in the what would eventually become the screamo scene i guess um they did a split the first release with the lawrence arms when they first became a band which is a weird kind of throwback to what asian man records and stuff right so again um multiple genres all kinds of stuff happening but they were all kind of like our peers two good ones to mention for sure um I guess if you ever made it uh, like out of the state, it was kind of cool, you know, uh, where we grew up. If Especially if you got to the point where you either had a van or capabilities to do like a weekend tour, you know, that, that was really making it. Um, and some did, you know, uh, some did and beyond. So in, in our area, it was like, if you just put yourself out there and, uh, were able to get get yourself out there. It was a victory, you know. I will say this though, it was like it was really hard to get out of the county that we lived in, right? It was like we almost kind of operated in a little bit of like isolation, you know? Like a, a vortex of, of a kind. So there'd be a couple of shows a month in its heyday, whether it be, you know, one show at this place, the phone booth, and then the next week it was at, you know, a church basement. And then there was something small at somebody's backyard or in a field somewhere, or a barn or some weird shit, you know. But um, it was hard to kind of like get beyond that. So for us, like Jersey bands that were seemed like a big deal to us were like Inspector 7 that you mentioned or Catch-22. Big Wig was really important to us. Um, they, you know, were quite popular at the time, but they were like... Um, uh, had gone beyond because they had toured and they put out a record that you can go find in a store, you know, and that was just so inconceivable to us at the time, you know? Let's kind of move forward a little bit to where you guys become a band that gets out of your county, that starts to tour. Does this begin, begin more like more or less in the 2001 era or were, or were you guys getting out before then? Yeah, just about, right? So I joined the band in uh, fall 99 and we, you know, tried hard to get out, you know, as much as we could at that time. And we were not in the position to tour 
per se, but, you know, we would try to get, you know, try to play shows outside of our local area during that time. And it maybe happened a couple of times, isolated spots here and there prior to that. Um, you know, there were, you know, the band got added to a couple of cool shows out in Pennsylvania. I think one was with catch 22 and Metro styly. John, can you help me with that? Yeah. Uh, CC's in music, Pennsylvania. Yeah. So there were a few things that kind of exposed us as a band to like, Oh, this could be cool if we push ourselves and get out there, you know, if we don't just wait around to play every other month at, the phone booth, you know, if we can get out there. Um, but I think by the time that we, you know, started being able to drive ourselves to shows, I think that's what really ramped it up. Cause then there was like, all right, we don't have to hold back. We don't have to ask our friends or parents for rides to haul our gear or drop us off on the curb outside of a venue. We can get there if we want to get there and we could manage this ourselves. So that's what really picked it up. 99, 2000, 2001, you know, playing out more, it was possible because we were able to make it happen on our own. Arvin and I graduated high school in 2000, and we went, almost made a pact to go to college together, and we were roommates our freshman year, um, not too far away from home, so that, like, we could continue playing in this band and give it a shot and do whatever we could on the weekends and stuff. So that was that was moving into, um, that was 2000, 2001 school year, you know? So, uh, hmm. by the, by the end of that year, we, um, you know, it act like recorded professionally, uh, and put out our first EP and, um, rented our first tour van to go out for the summer, you know? So I, it all, it kind of happened fast within that year, but, uh, yeah. as of 2001, I'd say is when we like, you know, uh, and Arben, am I wrong? Did we use like book your own life? Yeah. Book your own fucking life. Book your own fucking life. And we, and we just call sent physical press kits back then, of course, to like wherever we could. And I think that first tour really went in blind. Like we, we have no idea where we're going, what we're doing. Uh, but it was obviously the greatest time ever. Now, this is the timeline I, I, re- I read and you can correct if this is wrong or add to it. 2001 East Coast tour, then record for my friends your first EP, first official EP, uh, more tour, and then finish mixing and, and everything for for my friends. I think actually for my friends was all done. Yeah, if I'm not not wrong by that first su- that summer of 2001. Yeah, I think that's why we wanted. Well, we wanted to get out on tour just to like just to do it, you know, because that seemed like such a lofty goal for a band like can your band go on tour that was such a next level thing for us at the time but we wanted to work that around having like an official release you know and we had like our first real release on an actual label with cds that were manufactured and sent to us in boxes (laughs) you know what i mean as opposed to like photocopied uh cdrs that we would fold up ourselves and sell at shows so, yeah, so I think that that year it was, you know, we worked on an EP, put it out, I think, sometime that summer, and then did like a summer East Coast and back kind of tour. So you said that it was a Book Your Own Fucking Life tour. What was, uh, can you remember the just the, sort of the strangest 
situation or venue of that tour? <laughs> oh man. Um, you know, so much of that, you know, I remember that we did that tour with a band called a band from New Jersey called face first that would eventually uh, morph into a band called Houston calls who were, um, you know, quite known and kind of did their own thing and, um, you know, put out records on, I believe drive through or a subsidiary of drive through. Um, so our first tour with, with, was with them cause they were like, just our friends and they had toured once before. So they seemed like grizzled veterans, old pros <laughs> who had their own van. We had to rent a van, you know, which we didn't, I don't even know how we ended up paying for that. That, that seems so stupid now, <laughs> Terrible. but, um, but yeah, they had toured, they had driven all night from one show to the next. And that was so like foreign to us. We couldn't even, I think on our first or second night of the tour, we had to drive all night and like, we couldn't make it. So <laughs> I believe Jarrett, who was the bass player of face first, um, drove our van because we were just like, you know, 18 or 19 and couldn't hack it. And we're too tired. Um, but yeah, played weird places, shitty clubs, um, halls, all kinds of stuff. I think on that tour, or maybe the next one, we, you know, got the, the dreaded, found the dreaded note on the door of the venue. Like tonight's show has been canceled. Go fuck off kind of thing. Um, so that <laughs> happened, you know, didn't get paid anything, probably didn't sell any merch or, you know, it was, you know, a complete debacle. Um, but we ended up loving it. You know, it was um, falling in love with parts of that and, trying to refine that process to make it better afterwards. Yeah. The, the first tour was also pre social media um, and pre not pre internet, obviously, but pre um, communication being like uh, mostly done through some sort of messenger or whatever. And so to wind up showing up to a show with a note on the door was really the best thing that promoter could actually do to, to like notify us. You know, there's no other way to tell us like, sorry. Yeah. No, no one had a cell phone. 2001. None, none of us had cell phones. Yet. Nobody knows who you are and I didn't promote this and uh, nobody's coming and it's not worth it or whatever. Right. Not worth turning the lights on or whatever. Yeah. But then on that tour um, and this happened for like a handful of tours, there was always that one show where like you booked it, you didn't know it wasn't really a venue but you, you still played. And uh, in central Florida on that, on that first tour, we played at like what was basically a billiard hall. Um, but it was also like a fried chicken place. And I think that like people just kind of came there to drink some beers and play pool. Um, and, <laughs> but there was a stage, you know? And so we were doing our thing and screaming and yelling and nobody in the, in the establishment other than face first was there to watch us. And it, it, it's kind of um, almost bittersweet to think about that. Cause we had so much fun, you know, we had so much fun, so much unadulterated, um, stupid fun. So when like bands, like sometimes complain about having to be a background music for people who weren't there for them, but when a band has screaming in their, you know, it's part of their <laughs> yeah. part of their music. It's, You're not really background music anymore, no matter how much people wish that was the case. 
which made it that much more comical <laughs> at this place because who really wants to um, hear anyone just screaming constantly <laughs> while while eating a chicken sandwich, you know? You know what even would have been better? If it was just you screaming, John, like if we all took the night <laughs> off and let you... It might as well have been. That would have been something a little more interesting to these people than having a whole band play while they're just trying to like eat their yeah. chicken wings and drink their you know, dollar Coors Lights on a Thursday evening after work, you know? <laughs> yes. But, you know, even in the years to come to any of those moments on tour that could have, you know, could realistically sort of break a band where they're just like, fuck this, man, this is not worth it. Um, we, we always sort of found the best way to, you know, shake it off and ha- try to have some fun with it, you know, and, we toured with bands that shared that mentality too. One band, uh, Paulson, our, our good buddies from New Jersey, whenever we were on the road with them and a show kind of tanked, we used to do a, um, it was called the, the uh, false and poly set. And it would be an interchangeable mix. We would do a song, they would do a song, but in between songs, we would all sort of pass off instruments to each other. So uh, the music didn't stop the entire time and it was just kind of moving from song to song. Um, but those nights wound up being for as disastrous, like financially as they were, <laughs> they, they wound up being just so much fun. And uh, so I guess like uh, the early years where it was more about just um, running around and seeing what this is about before it got serious, of course. And before we were like, well, we, kind of have to pay bills and like take care of shit financially respond, you know, be responsible financially. So there's, um, there's a specific show in 2002. I want to talk about. Yeah. You play the Stevens Institute of technology in Hoboken. Yeah. That was an important show for us. Yes. So this is the show where you meet Fred Feldman from triple crown. Yes. Yeah. So I believe if I remember correctly, like we had some sort of contact with Fred, prior to that and that was like the next his next available time to like kind of come and see us and that was he had an office in brooklyn so we played in that the stevens uh institute of technology is in hoboken so it was like easy for him to come and check us out so we had i guess exchanged emails or maybe had a phone call or two and it was like okay okay i like you know i like a lot of the band i like what you guys are all about i gotta come and see you first kind of thing And that was the first time that he saw us. And it was a great show. Um, Converge headlined, which were one of like our personal favorites. Heroes of ours who allegedly don't like ska, which I saw. Yeah. yeah. I want to (laughs) talk. I want to ask about this. Okay. So when you guys are playing your set. Yeah. What do they do during the ska sections? What do they do? (laughs) (laughs) Do they suddenly stop? Completely freeze. uh, Completely freeze up during the headlights. No, no. <laughs> yeah, but then when you, when you switch back to the uh, hardcore and metal metalcore stuff, do they light back up? Yes, they start breathing again. Okay, okay. They they uh, they re they reanimates uh, at that point. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, as silly as it sounds, for different like mosh and skank and dance styles of uh, of all that stuff, you know, like so many of them are interchangeable, and so much of the music, if you kind of sort of block out the aesthetic, right? If you block out like how people are dressed and 
their just general appearance. Like you can move similarly in a lot of ways to a lot of this stuff, you know, and it all can sort of gel a lot more than I think people maybe initially realize. So yeah, for the most part, people stay pretty active start to finish, you know? Yeah. Your guys' approach, we haven't really talked about this yet. Your guys' approach to mixing these genres is um, not really the way other bands have done it. Like, I think, you know, the, the formula, what, you know, started out being like a, like a verse of ska and then a chorus of punk or something like that. But um, you will have ska sections for like, you know, like a measure or, you know, something like that. You kind of you kind of go back and forth between like these hardcore beats and ska upbeats, it's back and forth in a way where they almost do kind of transition in a very seamless way, where it's not such as such this like jagged like section change. Yeah, but that's you're right though. It's a lot of sections. I, I don't know if, especially at first, we ever really wrote songs in the uh, traditional verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge sort of set up um I, I guess you know the best person to answer this and he probably wouldn't be able to answer it for himself but uh a game is sort of the chief um engineer behind mostly all of folly songs you know the uh ideas that a game came up with and, and of, of course we all collaborated uh in our own ways to them but i guess like a game's kind of the brainchild of the band, his sensibilities for, you know, writing and how things move from part to part. I, I don't even know. I, I still to this day have no idea how to get into that brain and see what, what, what he thought in that moment to go from here to here. Um, but I, and I hate to be or sound philosophical about it. No, let's get philosophical. <laughs> well, it seemed a little more, and to me, even to this day, it just seems a little more natural to life that there's, uh, that it's not so scripted in this um, callback form where it's this part, this part, back to this part, back to this part. And, you know, it's, for us, it was like, let's move from place to place and emotion to emotion, uh, maybe thematically or lyrically try to keep a, a, a united front on it all, but um, have these parts just speak for themselves and move into each other, you know? Um, so a, a game would definitely be the one to ask about it. And I, I would be interested to see what he would have to say in trying to break down his own like songwriting strategy. In terms of your heavier stuff, it's also very rhythmic. And so I feel like the rhythm of the heavy stuff mixes with the rhythm of the ska like just as if they were interchangeable well that's that's the bond isn't it you know isn't it the the rhythm of it all um you know f for me and arvin i guess uh, being a bassist too especially when you think of ska music and reggae and rocksteady like you think so much of the drum and bass you know the 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 beat of it the 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 swing of it you know um and like arvin was saying before in, in approaching the, these things on the dance floor for uh, somebody who really loved to dance at hardcore shows could dance for us too because when you get to a choppy ska part 
it's no different than that sort of two-step choppy hardcore part. Yep. And, uh, you know, so mixing those things um, for as different and foreign as they seem to each other, just sort of like needed to be together. Like a song, like, and this is a, this is from your next record, but I think a song that's a really good example is a repeat. I repeat, repeat. Yeah. The way the, that song, and I don't, I don't have very good language for the heavier music. Cause I don't, I don't know as much about this different subgenres. Yeah, and you're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Adam could step. No. <laughs> Some of that stuff where it's like kind of those, like kind of slower, but kind of like heavy down, like rhythm. There's, there, there's parts in that song that does that. And that throws in upbeats as well. That is just kind of like really, I was really like listening close to it. it kind of blew my mind how you were alternating between them in a way that didn't sound like you were making these dramatic shifts. They were very like subtle shifts. Yeah, I think, um, you know, John, you kind of hit upon something before. Um, you know, as much as people would make hay about, you know, the kind of multi genre aspect of it, you know, it, it's so much of it just seems to relate in musicality, right? You know, and, and, you know, Scott and reggae, one of the biggest, uh, you know, like the backbone of that is it's syncopation, right? It's like when you're not playing. And I think we maybe use parts of that. Uh, we almost use some of like the ska brain for our heavier parts and maybe use some of like the metal and hardcore part of our brain in our ska parts too, if that makes sense. So it's like, yeah, it's not like it's so rigid where it's like, well, this is a ska part and it's got to be played in this way in the style of whoever. And then we, you know, stop on a dime and go into this part and it's going to sound like this band and play in that style. It's like trying to do what we do um, and using all of these sort of like musical and rhythmic elements to kind of complete one crazy fucked up series of thoughts. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I guess like to just fully complete my own thought, I think what's unique about what you guys do is that most bands that mix hardcore and ska or punk and ska, they use the dynamics of the differences of these genres. They highlight the, that mm -hmm. where I feel like you guys don't do that. I feel like you, you're not relying on the, the, the difference, different genres to create dynamics. You're actually trying to, I feels like you're trying to downplay the differences. Mm. And I don't feel like that's how most musicians approach playing hardcore and ska. I wonder, is that like some weird, like uh, somewhere deep in our psyche, knowing that we're, we'll never be fully accepted by hardcore kids? Is that like a way that we're trying to get accepted <laughs> by making our ska parts as seamlessly sort of uh, <laughs> hardcore metalcore as possible? You know, we just want everybody to hang out together is what it comes <laughs> down to. We are lovers, uniters. <laughs> as a band, we always felt like, um, uh, you know, um, like, uh, um, my God, Ray Liotta in um, Goodfellas. Ray Liotta in Goodfellas, right? He was an Irish guy, right? So he's never going to be made. He's never going to be like the top guy. Am I confusing movies? No, you're right. This is right. So it's like, so as far as being accepted by like, you know, hardcore or metal bands or that scene, you know, we can get. 99% of the way there we'll get our hands dirty we'll kill whoever you ask us to kill but we're never going to be 100% fully accepted because of 
in that case, the ska, which is like so silly, you know, or because of Ray Liotta's case, uh, he was Irish and not Italian, right? So we always kind of felt like that. Like we could go to a show and blow every other band off the stage, but we'll still <laughs> never get the full <laughs> the full respect of the made guy, you know? Well, it, in defense of ska or in defense of in defense of ska, <laughs> um, I, we... <laughs> rejoice now and never really apologizing for that either. Cause you know, what's funny is like, if you love what you're doing and you love the sound you're creating, um, why should we give a shit about anyone else? You know, why, why should we, why should we really give a shit about how you feel? We don't belong in, in your scene. You know, it's like, it, it I, I wish I could kind of go back in time and sort of slap myself and remind myself that at times, like, it, you know, it doesn't fucking matter. It, what you're playing feels good. And that's, that's what matters. Um, and I, I think there's probably more of a, a consciousness for that um, now. Yeah. I think we, we were in defense of Scott, like from way back in the day, man. <laughs> and there was never a period with folly where you guys decided maybe we should lay off the Scott. Oh, never amazing yeah never it's always been and even even now the the stuff that we've written that we haven't we've never recorded um we lean a little bit towards it now you know it's kind of like a uh not like we we missed out on showcasing it enough or anything but it's it's all reliable really you know and it's a, a genre of music that we all love and we feel in our bones like come on like in the end, you just fucking, you feel it in your funk bones, don't you? <laughs> it's got bops, as they say. It's got bops. It's just in your, yeah. it's in your juice. Yeah, that That's one of the things, right? And I mentioned this before. So, we, you know, people have asked us, are we going to drop the ska? Because we were still playing ska in the era of the, you know, what you can call the rock with horns bands. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, post 2000, when most ska bands just kind of stopped playing ska and either kicked out their horns or added a keyboard or just did the whole like, Oh yeah, we're a rock with horns now kind of thing. Um, which all oh, I always thought was such bullshit, you know? Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, we've had, you know, people from a few different labels basically like, you know, allude to the idea like, well, you know, we'd maybe be more interested if you'd drop the ska. Can you drop some names for us? Yeah, you sure? <laughs> Come on, it's been it's been a couple decades. Oh, for sure. Well, that's the thing. So going back to Triple Crown, right? Every, was, everybody other than Triple Crown, basically. Basically, yeah. So Fred was always Fred was the coolest, and you know was supportive of whatever weird thing we wanted to do. But and and you know back at this time, which would have been, I guess two thousand two, two thousand three, as bands get signed you know uh there's like a little bit of like you know there's like those industry whispers you know band members talk and managers and agents talk and label heads talk um and in new jersey a ton of bands were getting signed there was uh new jersey has you know of course long been a hotbed for tons of bands from all different scenes so this is in the age where you know Thursday is blowing up and Midtown and Catch-22 is doing what they're doing. Uh, and then a ton, ton of other bands, like kind of like, you know, beneath them or smaller than them. And we were, we would kind of 
fill that next sort of class, like the incoming freshman, if you will. So as we're about to like go to contract with Triple Crown, because there was a contract and everything, as you know, some not that we were we were ever in any kind of bidding war, but like still people talk, you know. So around that time, you know, as it's kind of becoming like a lesser known secret that we're going to sign with Triple Crown, labels kind of do their due diligence or check in. So someone from Victory Records reached out and we're like, mm. hey, what are you guys up to? You know, I was like, hey, you know, we're doing our thing. Uh, you know, why? What's up? And, you know, never hear back anything. And there was a large management group called Velvet Hammer, I want to say, that did the same kind of thing. Like the week before we were like going to be signed, like they check in and ask what we're up to. Same thing for Roadrunner Records, who I believe they were one of the whole like, when are you going to drop the ska camp? Um, so, you know, weird stuff like that used to happen. Um uh, someone would give you a business card and tell you to call them. And then you call them on Monday morning and they're like, you know, well, who are you? Like, <laughs> what, what are you talking about? And that was my experience at Roadrunner too. Um, pretty known uh, dude named Mike Gitter, who was always super nice, but like did the whole, like, what are you guys up to? Are you thinking about dropping the ska? Here's my card. <laughs> give me a call. Give me a call if you ever want to drop the ska. Well, yeah, I don't think it came out exactly like that, but that's what, you know, I think they were alluding to. That's what it said. It said that on the actual uh, business yeah. card. Give me, give me... <laughs> for a good time, uh, drop the sky. Give me a call. And listen, for all you young kids, uh, to call someone means to uh, use a what we call the telephone, where you would speak with the voice. Oh, you mean the thing in my pocket? Yeah, you mean my camera? That that thing, you you can you can speak on it to another person if you dial a number. Except it wasn't in their pocket, it was on the wall and you had to cord. It was yeah, and you had to hold it <laughs> to your to your face. Yeah, like actual telephones, rotary phones. You used to be able to kill someone with one of those things. I kind of missed that aspect of it. <laughs> in defense of Ska, will return in a moment. I'd like to hear Adam's take on their approach to ska core as a as a guitar player and a ska core musician himself. What my personal or yeah, what do you what do you think? Because what is your take on their their style, their their approach to mixing the genres? I mean, it's so much heavier than what other bands that were dabbling in hardcore and ska and punk were doing, like. I mean, I, you guys kind of got going around what two thousand, like really out on the road, two thousand two, two thousand three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, so like that's like we just missed that because we stopped touring. Link eighty stopped touring in two thousand two, mm-hmm. and I mean, we would have like because we played with you know hardcore bands that played the type of hardcore you played, but never touched ska. And so if we'd seen a band do what you guys are doing, which is much closer to a band like Converge, much more metalcore, Hmm. and then going into a ska part, we would have all lost our minds. We didn't think it was possible. (laughs) Because like our our way of doing it was just like, okay, ska and punk parts, and then breakdowns, or like a hardcore song with a ska breakdown. But there's like, there's elements of those like heavy um, throwback hardcore sounds, you know, even like, um, 
was listening to Big D, Big D's Good Luck recently. Um, there's that song Learning to Listen, right? Mm-hmm. I, and I, I don't know the year that album came out, but that's, that song is so fucking heavy. Um, Suicide Machines, obviously, like a song like DDT, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and so for us, like with, with bands that kind of uh, in the wave before us, that sort of set uh, thumpers backstabber. There's a Misfits mm-hmm. uh, of Scott too reference for you, Aaron. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you. Because I believe your old band is on that. Yeah, comp, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. You know, and like there, there are these hints of it in the in these awesome ska bands um, that really lived in the ska world a little more, a little more so than in the hardcore punk world. Oh man, hey, uh, hey, by the Suicide Machines. I think that might have changed my life. Like the intro to that song was like, you know, my 14 year old brain was like on the floor after hearing like, wow, you could do this, you know? <laughs> uh, and of course there was like Fishbone before that and the Boss Tones and bands that maybe got heavier, but that just seemed so like crushing and heavy at the time. Um, and it just sort of like opened up like a whole world. Like, I can't believe someone did that, you know? Well, but then I feel like you guys took it and just ran with it even further. Like, yeah. Like, yeah, you're, you're, you're calling back to all these, like, yeah, these guys were doing this, but like you then, you then took it and took it a step or two further where it, it fits more with the metal, like, you know, Link 80 would play with hardcore bands, but you guys could really play with hardcore bands. Yeah, we did a lot. We did. And I, I wonder, we've talked about this art before. I wonder if it was us. Um, like we, I think the tip, the traditional way we've always thought of it is like we, we kind of um, became or like the sound that we created in our, with our music was like a reflection of what was going on. Mm. But sometimes I know we've talked about this. I, I wonder if it was like to fit in because in New Jersey at the time when we were kicking in the early two thousands, especially shows were so diverse you know like there were these mixed shows with ska bands and hardcore bands and metal bands and um swing even like there was like that that swing moment in life right but the 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 mixed variety of bands around us too i think was like it was very helpful um so if we if we pushed it further it was kind of like well we we maybe we have to assimilate a little bit with all of the awesome music that's around us. Like maybe to to play uh, these shows in Jersey, we have to um, be able to like have a chameleon like approach to it, you know? Mm, interesting. Yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't considered it that way. You know, I think also um, I had to do, you know, a lot of it has to do with just what we were absorbing, you know, what we were, involved in right so if you looked at like yeah the other bands before us sure they played fast or heavy but like suicide machines were probably listening to sick of it all and the chromags and youth of today for their heavy music influences and by the time that we were coming of age we were listening to that but also converge and also uh the dillinger escape plan and also mm-hmm. candiria and Hatebreed and you know this new heavier more metallic wave of bands kind of taking chances yeah so even if converge doesn't like ska that as a heavy band you know they took a lot of chances musically and i think that always kind of appealed to us like taking those chances but also 
kind of, um, you know, our first points of reference would be Converge, Shai Halud, Indecision, like bands like that, like current bands of the late 90s. Uh, and then we'd go back and find the bands of the 80s that maybe, you know, uh, the bands that we liked were then influenced by. So I think our immediate influences were so much, you know, I think largely based on what we could see, what we could feel, what we could touch, you know, like what we could be immediately involved in. We could go see Converge and Hatebreed when we were 15. You know, we, we ne- couldn't necessarily go see the Chromags or the, the Specials for that matter or whoever, like at that time, you know. Converge had a big influence on Folly. Folly has a big influence on some of the newer ska core bands like uh, Best of the Worst. So we're looking at a um, we're looking at a continuum of a ska music where Converge has an important influential element. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that in case they happen to be listening, whether they like it or not. Yeah, whether they yeah, m- much to their uh, chagrin. <laughs> sorry, they are very sorry, Jakey. Very important. They are very important to the current uh, uh, climate of ska punk. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, and we and we went to so many Converge shows, man. <laughs> so many your first record on um on a triple crown uh insanity later how how does that record do this comes out in 2004 yeah yeah um uh spring spring 2004 um yeah we were psyched man we were like just you know really really optimistic about everything happening and just kind of the course of the band and just wanted to hit the road as hard as we could and play as often as we could. Cause we really, you know, believed in the record, you know, we believed in kind of like our outsider status, like kind of um, us against the world kind of thing. And our mission was to kind of like, you know, befriend the cool weird people at each show, not necessarily walk away with the most fans, but walk away with like the, higher quality fans, you know? So the next record, um, Resist Convenience, 2006, where in there in those two albums, was was that your bigger record or were you guys most kind of at your peak at that point in terms of like, you know, where it felt like you were, had the most steam as a band? You know, um, I think the first, the first record sold, I think considerably more than the second. Oh, okay. All right. (laughs) Um, I don't know about considerably more, but like, you know, at the time when CDs mattered and uh, sound scan was a thing, I think it was something in the neighborhood of like maybe we sold close to like ten thousand records of our of Insanity later, and like maybe sold like seven or eight thousand of uh, Resist Convenience, which are like sounds like a lot, you know, but it was definitely concentrated in certain areas. So like, you know. Um, shows would still vary quite wildly depending on where we played in the country. Um, So much of those record sales were concentrated to like the Northeast of the United States, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was hard to, you know, um, it was hard to feel like we ever had like a full head of steam because we'd play a string of really great shows and then hit a down patch of, playing for nobody for, you know, a period of time and then playing some weird church basement and then some fire hall. And then, you know, you might have a, a week's worth of, you know, poorly attended shows 
And then you start to wonder, all right, are we going to be able to sustain this tour? Is our money going to run out before the next decent show happens? And then we get a few decent shows and that kind of sustains the rest of it. So it never felt like we were, you know, as far as like being like a successful touring band, like, yeah, we can do this and we have nothing to worry about and we have a full head of steam and we can sustain this. It always seemed kind of, you know, a few bad shows away from being pushed off a cliff, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was always like, so astonished that we uh, made it home, you know, like at, at the end of at the end of any tour, it was like, if we can make it home, whether we have money or not, that's pretty awesome. Um, and, and that was sort of even, even to the end, even to the, the point when we stopped touring full time and stuff. Um, yeah. I think that was always kind of like the, the bar to meet. Uh, we never financially, we just never really uh, looked at it that way. Um, you know, I think in the end we tried to, and then we realized like, this is sort of an impossible way of life, you know, uh, for us at the time it was. And it, but during, during that time, like, I don't know if we had a peak or whatever, but I, to go back to your question, Aaron, I think like the, in between those albums was definitely the like um, the most amazing time um, being in a band, playing, playing shows, traveling, but also like being constructive. I, th- I feel like we really hit like our, our creative um, zone where we all felt like we settled into a sound. I think with insanity later, we we sort of officially had like a folly sound quote unquote. Yeah. There's definitely between um, your first EP and Insanity later, I feel like you can hear a big jump forward. Yeah, I think we we kind of settled in and uh, matured a little bit with it. But on on Resist Convenience, I feel like you went both a little heavier and diversified a little bit more. Yeah, like the heavier sec the heavy sections are heavier, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I feel like you have more tools in your in your at your arsenal as well on that record. Yeah, like on on Resist, there's definitely like a few moments of, um, you know, like a more standardized kind of song structure. I think there's a song or two that have, you know, a verse, chorus, verse kind of structure to it. And a few, you know, melodic moments that breathe over time because prior to that, you know, things, we seem to like get to parts. And then as soon as we get to a part musically, we try to get out of it right away into the next thing. Um, so I think we definitely went, yeah, like you said, I think that's a fair assessment, kind of heading in both directions and to a little more melodic, um, kind of standardized sort of songwriting aspect, but also just getting like heavier too. Um, I think, I th- yeah, I'd agree with both those. So you, you guys did an interview in like 2006 for Punk News, and I have a few questions about some of your answers. Oh boy. <laughs> okay. For, for... <laughs> First question is the interviewer starts talking to you about uh, Paps Blue Ribbon. Hmm. And uh, one of you, I think it was John, I'm not sure, said, said, yes, we love Paps Blue Ribbon. It's the best of the worst. Mm. Mm. Hey, interesting choice of words there. Look at that. Now, was there a reason you chose that? Was Because the band was just starting right then, weren't they? Well, were they starting then or did they read that and maybe immediately start a band after reading John's work? That's what I'm investigating right now. Oh man, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to press Jay on this. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry, Jay. I meant nothing by it. <laughs> well, let's we'll put it out there and 
if you're listening, best of the worst, please answer on Twitter. I think that, that as a comment still, that as a belief that still holds up, I think PBR is still the best of the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Second thing, this will hope this might be a longer answer. Um, oh boy. The interviewer is asking you about a specific show in Connecticut that gets cut short due to fight. And hmm. John, you talk about having eaten uh, a lot of meatballs that day at the show. <laughs> So yes, tell me what you remember about this show. I, that's all I remember. Um, they had a, a tray of Swedish meatballs. It was like, you know, like a catering size tray. Um, whenever we had any sort of free food or anybody cook for us, or we had, you know, anything afforded to us, I was very gluttonous about that. (laughs) (laughs) I can relate. I can relate. Yeah, like it's like, well, you know, almost out of spite that this is free. I'm going to eat it uh, and then pay the price, obviously, while sweating uh, and and screaming for an hour. Yeah, tell us what it's like to play a show with the meat sweats. With... It's, it's awful. That's <laughs> terrible. Uh, I've definitely seen Anthony, our drummer, on at least one, if not multiple occasions like just vomit his face off immediately after playing, like hit the last note, run off stage and hit the exit door on the side of the stage. And like, just there's projectile like spaghetti, like across the parking lot afterwards. So not a good move to gorge yourself on, you know, uh, spaghetti and meatballs uh, before you play. But if it's free, you gotta, you gotta hit it. I mean, Adam, you know, you said, right. I mean, when you're on tour, if it's free food, you got to take advantage of it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's always the the issue of the promoter orders a bunch of Papa John's pizza and it shows up during the band before you. And you know, if you sure. eat it right then, that somebody else is going to eat it all and you're going to get off stage and there's going to be no food. <laughs> so then you just like hammer down like this disgusting, greasy cheese pizza and then go jump up and down and play a show. It's like, oh, yeah, it's like a prison, uh, prison cafeteria rules. You know, it's like you got to get what's yours before someone could take it. <laughs> right. Do you remember the fighting and what happened that part of the show? I really don't personally. Uh, I, I I don't. That happens mm-hmm. you know, from time to time. We definitely experienced our fair share, if not during our set at some of the shows we played. Yeah, as to the relevant, you know, how terribly I answered that question um, <laughs> to, by deflecting it to the Swedish meatball tray that I ravaged. Um, you know, maybe that's why I, I, maybe I block out violence with meat sweats. <laughs> Did you play Connecticut frequently? And just it's just interesting that this show came up in that interview and, and Fa- uh, Anthony Fantano mentioned you guys. We did, actually. Uh, that was, you know, Connecticut in many ways is very similar to New Jersey, it has very similar feel to it. Um, similar sort of people and their and their scene, especially like the ska punk scene where we fit in, was always very strong. It's it's, you know, not too far away from where we lived um so we could make those shows it it wasn't unreasonable to take a couple hour drive out to um you know uh where do we play arvin meriden and wallingford mostly yeah like a lot of um connecticut similar to new jersey had a very strong kind of like diy like hall scene where a lot of shows were happening and you know firehouses legion halls and um we went up there kind of early 
um, in our traveling days, definitely well before like we got a van. Cause I remember like caravanning up there with a bunch of us, you know, in cars on the highway um, to play up there. And we ended up um, befriending some bands and be- befriending a promoter or two who kind of um, um, this dude, Mark, who, you know, has been in the music promoting game ever since. And he's made a career for himself doing it now. Um, but yeah, just kind of working with someone who was a fan of the band and kind of kept bringing us back. And we were happy to get out of New Jersey to play. So that just kind of, you know, fostered a relationship with, you know, so basically just making friends um, and kind of cultivating that. As a matter of fact, uh, Jeff, our other guitar player, um, met his wife back in the day at one of these Connecticut shows uh, and they're, they got married years later. So it kind of became like a second home for us in a lot of ways by just like playing up there a lot, making friends, seeing the same people every couple of months that we'd go there. And um, like I said, just kind of cultivating that direct relationship with people who would come to our shows. Were you at all um, aware of or connected to the ctska.com? Anthony brought that up as like a, a reference, you know, like a message board, message board. God. Yeah. I don't think we were, we had, New Jersey had one too, very similarly. What was it called? Uh, Ska, NJ Ska for a while, right, Arvin? Um, was it the NJ scene at, at, at some point, the NJ scene, right? That turned into the NJScene.com. But yeah, so back in the era of message boards, uh, Ska, NJ Ska was like the clearinghouse for ended up being the clearinghouse for like just about all like kind of underground sort of punk and ska related stuff. Uh, and then because it became so much more than just singularly focused on ska, the webmasters changed it over to the njscene.com. But um, yeah, as far as the Connecticut ska um, message board or page, I'm, I'm not totally familiar with that. Maybe, you know, we probably had flyers on there or show postings, but um. I wasn't, I don't think I was directly involved in, I don't think you were either, right, John? No, no, but the the New Jersey message board was kind of for a lot of us, like our first social media experience, really. And that's how we did find out about local shows. That's how we also, as a band early on, um, uh, networked with other bands and uh, promoted shows as well. So really kind of cool in, in a way at the advent of social media itself that you had these ways to uh, communicate with people in a quicker, more efficient and more effective way, you know, Um, sort of peddling your art, but also being a part of the scene and weighing in on, on whatever other chats are out there, you know? So, but uh, I, I imagine, I would imagine a lot of the good buddies that we wound up knowing in Connecticut were involved with theirs as well. We'll be right back after this. So the the band breaks up in like 2008, right? Or stop? Was it is it a breakup at that point? Uh, yeah, at the time, uh, it seemed to all of us very final. <laughs> very, uh, you know, we kind of had a, I guess at this point, kind of like a, a, a naive and fatalistic approach to to the band. You know, like this is it, and if we cannot be a full time touring band continuously putting out new records, then we're just going to cease to be a band and that's final. 
and that's kind of where we were at the at that time uh so yeah that was it 2008 last shows done you know so like i think one of the one of the interesting things about this particular era is that you you announced your breakup on myspace right (laughs) probably (laughs) yeah probably and it was probably very formal and declarative and like you know apologetic and um I probably wrote it, so it was probably very long, um, <laughs> you know, but, you know, Arben, like you said, it, it, it looking back on it, it is kind of naive, but you didn't know any better. You thought you had to, um, when you knew you weren't going to tour full time, you thought out of like, out of respect, you know, like for honor and dignity's sake, I must tell them, I got, I got to tell them that, that we're bowing up. What what was the role? The role of of MySpace in this era, did you use MySpace frequently to connect with fans or to connect with bands to get shows? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was a that was definitely a major, um, you know, tool for band business, whether it be marketing purposes or promoting shows or just being in touch with other people, whether it be, you know, venues, bands, uh, whatever it is. Yeah, that was... Um, you know, uh, kind of a clearinghouse for a lot of sort of band related contacts and business. Um, so yeah, I remember, yeah, using that quite heavily, quite steadily. Uh, even at that time, I think we probably at that time even like faded away from having like a standalone website and we just had like a MySpace page. Yeah. I remember bands putting instead of their website address on, on things, they would put their MySpace address. (laughs) And I always thought that was, even at the time, I was like, that's so goofy. Yeah. Right. Like, it seems so silly now, but that's just... Sort of... Even then, it seemed weird. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it seemed less weird then because, like, you know, I think a lot of bands were just f- shying away from having their own sort of dedicated website space. Yeah. And if you did, you just linked it to your MySpace page anyway, you know? There's a fair amount of that, too. Remember, do you remember MySpace bulletins? Yes. Yes, I do. That that yes. became like the the like uh, putting a flyer on a on a lamp post. Mm-hmm. Well, who's in your top eight? You know, that's that's what you have to really worry about. There's that too. I remember people people ending friendships over that type of stuff. Yeah, and then people just spamming spamming the uh, bulletins. Do you guys? Do you guys at this point in your lives? Do you find yourselves being the quote unquote like the old guy when saying you know back in my day we used to. Uh, you know, photocopy flyers at our at our high school, and the uh, staff wasn't looking just to go around to the diners and post them. Like, do you ever find yourself telling those stories? Yeah, and then and then I see the young person's eyes glaze over, and then my wife my wife nudges me. My wife nudges me and says, "No one cares." Yeah, no one cares, or <laughs> nor do they understand uh, enough to care. You know. Yeah, you got to basically. If you want to, if you want to talk about the back in the days, you have to talk with people your own age about the yeah. back in the days, and then you guys yes. just have a great time feeling old talking together. about yeah. the you know the paradigm shift from <laughs> life, uh, uh, you know, as a as an exennial um, with life before the internet and then life with the internet. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what happens. Exennial is that a thing? I've never heard. That's I think uh, our gen our specific generation, Arben. I think we're halfway between the uh, generation X and and the millennials. Oh, okay, okay. Well, look at that. We're we're all in our forties. I'm guessing. I'm a generation X. 
Are you though? You were in high school with me. I'm 47. I was born in 1975. I am, I am a Generation X. Or okay, I'm just that. That's okay. I hope that's okay, Adam. Well, <laughs> we can talk about it later. <laughs> so, but I want to ask about what the reunion shows have been like for you guys. Crazy. Uh, I guess I the whole term of re- reunion show just makes me not feel great. I don't know why well, you did, but you did release a MySpace bulletin announcing you were breaking up. So <laughs> I know, I know. And like I said, in our naive minds at that time, it all seemed so final. You know what it was, you know, um, do you remember a bunch of years ago, um, uh, the band refused to put out their DVD. Yeah. Do you remember that coming out? And maybe like, I don't know, 05, 06. Mm-hmm. I think it's called The Refused or Fucking Dead, right? And they shot it like a fucking movie. It was unlike any band documentary I've ever seen. And they were so, like, serious and, and pretentious, but also kind of cool. And the way that they went about, like, like, their band was so, like, big in their minds. Not big, like, popularity-wise, but just so, like, all-encompassing that there's no way they could ever revisit the idea <laughs> of playing again. Like the drama involved was just too much to bear, you know? And I'm not that we were influenced by that, but it just seemed like at that time, it's like, yeah, the band is going to break up. That's it. Band's breaking up. And I understand the idea of a reunion and by definition, sure. But I just feel like, ugh, ugh, <laughs> gross. I don't know. Well, what, when, when was the first time you played after your official breakup? So that was 2011. Oh, okay. Uh, so a few years later, we're like, hey, we're going to do a couple of shows. Um, because at the time, um, we all lived like pretty close, you know, close proximity. And after the band had broken up, we were still very much involved in each other's lives. You know, we'd still see each other like on the weekends or, you know, we're, we're still very much like in the same crew, you know? So at that time I was planning to move, um, pretty far away. I was planning to move to Denver, Colorado. And at the time it was like, Hey, if I'm going to move, maybe we should do a couple of shows because again, with this whole kind of a thinking that things are going to work out forever. It's like, I'm going to move who knows when I'll come back, (laughs) you know, as if like moving was, um, you know, that would be the real end of the, of the possibility of ever playing again. So we were like, yeah, let's do a couple of shows before I move. Um, and whatever, we'll just do a couple of random shows just because we want to play. Cause we feel like playing, we're still involved in each other's lives. We still have, you know, we still love the songs and love what the band did. We're very much about it. Let's just play for the sake of having a good time, you know? So what was the MySpace bulletin like for those shows? Or was it still MySpace, or were you on to Facebook at that point? We might have abandoned all all internet. And whatever it was would have certainly been overly wordy, overly dramatic. The time has come. Again, with much more um, more explanation than people are, were probably interested in. I think we, we might have reverted to cjb.net at that point, I think. <laughs> So in 2019, you do a uh, uh, 15-year anniversary of Insanity Later. You just a couple shows for that? Yes. Yep, we did two shows for the vinyl 
reissue of that album. Yeah. Well, reissue of the album, but first time on vinyl. What, did you just play the record front to back live? Uh, no, I think we mixed it up and just made it like a full headlining type set of a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Probably more insanity later than not, but we yeah. definitely, you know, mixed it up. And We did dive back into some songs we wouldn't have normally played for like a quote unquote reunion show. Um, one of the many that we've had since 2008. Um, but the, what, and Arben said it before, geographically, we're close enough. We have a, um, a re- rehearsal space where stuff is set up. So it's like, it's logical for us to get together, to be constructive. When the 15 year anniversary of that album is coming up, we had the idea, you know, we sort of pitched it around. Should we do this? It would be kind of a fun project. And all of us are, I wouldn't say working stiffs, but we're all professional folks and family, family folks, you know, like, um, uh, a few of us have kids. So with any of these, um, recent projects we've had, we, it just, it, it kind of goes back to where we all started with it all of like, you know, let's write some songs. Let's get in the garage or the basement or wherever we can practice. And let's just figure, figure out some tunes. Um, so yeah, to go back to the question of like, uh, you know, or, the idea of the reunion show, it's kind of like, well, when, when people still give a shit, um, I guess we should too, you know? Yeah. And that's really uh, us playing lately has been a reaction of that. We played a couple shows, uh, the last couple of years and it's been almost like a, wow, I can't believe people still give a shit. I can't believe people care. Our music apparently is important, uh, not just to us. So, you know, maybe, since we live close, since we have a practice space, since we, uh, since maybe our, our wives can, can deal with us out of the house for a little bit here and there, like, why not? Why not have some fun while we can? Yeah. So earlier this year, um, not, not that long ago, actually, um, two minutes to late night, they did a group cover of uh, broken. So we had yeah. like, we had members of soul glow with Jer, best of the worst cat bite, gray matter and gouge away. Uh, obviously, uh, at the, the release of this video, it was definitely a lot of bands saying that you were important to them. Was there a point during your own the the first run before you broke up, and, and any of the shows that you played later, where it started to feel like you were less of an odd duck, and that there was more more room for what you did without you having to be an odd odd part of the scene, like you know more existing more bands with similar sound or similar influences yeah i i think so i think there there was like a uh, a very late stage acceptance um not to say that you know the people who have always really liked us as a band uh ca- you know caught on later but when you start to see bands that fit in a little bit more to what you're doing yeah yeah for sure and, and what's funny is that the last couple big shows that we played when we sort of like came back again um, a- after the pandemic, um, but even beforehand, we played a couple big, like hardcore fests shows and, you know, we, especially early on, we would have been either fearful of, or reluctant to be accepted. Um, you know, we played in Jersey city a couple years in a row, 
uh, for a back to school fest uh, with a lot of like, you know, upcoming big name hardcore metal bands and some old school like classics like uh, Indecision or Most Precious Blood, you know, like, and we sort of, um, we fit in somehow. Like we, we were on, not just on the bill. We were, we had like a great draw. A lot of people came out uh, and, and screamed with us and, you know, it felt very good, almost like, okay, cool. This is what we always hoped for all along that, that we could do what we love and have so many, um, there's so much appreciation and respect and sort of be like, uh, you know, integrated into this new sort of scene. And like, you know, we're, we're all pushing 40 now ish and it's been a couple decades and, uh, we were, we were very young when we wrote those songs for Insanity Later and Roots Disconvenience, but now when we go back and play them, there's this brand new life to them. So, yeah, fitting in, uh, now starting to see some bands that say, like, oh, Folly was big for us. It's it's all really cool. Um, I'm very grateful for it. Yeah, I wish, um, you know, it's almost like uh, with the past couple of years, there's been um, a loud and growing and resurgent ska punk scene, you know, nationally. Um, and, you know, kind of viewing that from afar, you know, not uh, over the past couple of years, feeling like an observer rather than a participant, I couldn't help but feel like, oh man, I wish bands like this were around, you know, in these numbers with this intensity and this sort of focus and popularity when we were coming up, because it would have given us like, different sort of allies to partner up with or at least different bands to tour with, you know? Yeah. Or even just as like a, a fan of ska, you know, imagine, imagine uh, you Arben in high school, when we were in high school, imagine a band like kill Lincoln playing then. Oh, it would have been my favorite band uh, of all time. For sure. Yeah. 100%, you know, like, so it's so cool in this, in this sort of next wave, so to speak. Um, just even as like ska or punk or hardcore fans to see these like refreshing fucking great bands. Um, you know, it, l- it lends itself to like uh, the feeling of, well, you know, we've been here all along, I guess. And, uh, and it's kind of cool to now look back on, you know, our, our history as a band and, and sort of, uh, be able to live then and now. I think that's really, really, uh, something to be proud of thank you so much for listening to in defense of ska if you've enjoyed this episode please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes if you haven't already grab a copy of my book in defense of ska available at clashbooks.com you can follow us on twitter Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash In Defense of Ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the In Defense of Ska Discord. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. 
And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific indefensive ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, we leave you by saying ska now more than ever. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.